Well, amen and good morning. Welcome to King's Cross. My name is Clint, uh, one of the elders here. I've had the last month or so off, uh, so it's good to be back in the pulpit, back with you, uh, worshiping. I was on vacation this week, uh, so if my face looks a little darker, uh, maybe that's true. And maybe if you look close enough, there's a little skin peeling from the sunburn, uh, but not too bad. Uh, apparently, I used enough sunscreen, and it's not too bad, so praise God for that. But excited uh, to continue and jump back into our series in Exodus. And if you're a visitor, especially want to welcome you, maybe you're looking for a new church, uh, maybe you're a Christian uh, who's visiting family in town. I uh, want to give a special welcome to the folks from King, King's Tree in Winston-Salem. I know there's a number of folks here uh, that have moved uh, over here to be with us, so glad that you're here. But even if you're not a Christian and you're here, and you just want to explore the things of Christianity, I want you to know, no matter who you are, no matter where you're from, no matter why or how you got here, we're glad you're here. It's a good and safe place for you to be, uh, and we love the fact that you'd be here with us to talk about and hear uh, about the gospel of Christ, about the Lord Jesus and his work to redeem and save us. Um, but we also want you to know we're continuing in a study through the book of Exodus. Now, the book of Exodus is, is probably the most dominant uh, controlling book in all of the Old Testament uh, in that it sets forth God's redemptive plans. Uh, he decides that he's going to save a people, his people Israel, uh, from bondage and slavery. So they're in Egypt, they're in slavery, and he says, I'm going to send forth this deliverer, this Moses, who's going to set you free from this bondage and slavery. So after 400 years in slavery, he says, I'm going to set you free by sending forth these 10 plagues against Egypt in order to expose their false gods and goddesses, those who they thought would compete with Yahweh, the one true God. His heart and passion and burden in this narrative account in the Old Testament, and indeed in all of the Bible, is that he would be known. He's the one true God, and he's revealing himself even through these acts, through his power, through his delivery, uh, deliverance of his people. So he sends forth these ten plagues against Israel, exposing, or against Egypt, exposing the false gods in Egypt, each one by one demonstrating his superiority over them. And then finally, the death of the firstborn and the Passover, that they, uh, Israel trusts in the blood of the lamb that was slain to save them from God's wrath and judgment and to set them free from bondage. And then they go out and they part through the Red Sea. The waters part miraculously. He sets them free across the Red Sea. And then when Pharaoh's army, the Egyptian army comes in, the waters of God's judgment crush down on them. And then they're free. They've been saved. They've been delivered. And where we finished up in our study in Exodus chapter 15 just a few weeks ago was they were singing. What we said is this is what saved people do. Saved people sing. <laughs> Like when you realized I was dead and I was a slave and I was in bondage and I had no help and I had no hope, but God Almighty by His grace and His mercy, not because of anything I've done, has set me free, you sing. There's celebration, there's joy. And so Miriam, Moses' sister, and Moses write this song and Israel sings, celebrating their salvation and their freedom and their victory. But now suddenly, after singing, what happens? So they're on the way to Sinai. God had told and demanded that Pharaoh let his people go, that they might go forth into the wilderness to worship. And they're on way to Mount Sinai. They're going to hear from God. They're going to get God's law. They're going to hear more from God. But in between, there's this little section that we come to in chapters kind of at the end of 15 on through 19, where Israel's wandering in the wilderness. And there's a lot of lessons for us to learn as they wander in the wilderness. What, what, is, it, what is it that after you go from singing you might find yourself experiencing. What are they experiencing? How is that useful even for our instruction? What lessons are revealed in the pattern of salvation in Exodus that instruct us in the Christian life how we ought to live even today? 
Maybe we can answer that question by answering and asking this question. What's the Christian life supposed to look like? If salvation is not the end of the Christian life, like it's the finish line, I got saved, now I'm done, but the beginning of the Christian life. Now I'm saved. Now what? <laughs> what does this life look like? What should I expect the Christian life to look like? What is the normal ebb and flow of the Christian life? What should I expect life with God to be like as I walk with Him in this broken world? Well, friends, life with God in this broken world is a mixture of victories and valleys with God's superabundant grace, sustaining and sanctifying us through it all until He takes us to glory. The Christian life is a mixture of victories and valleys. That we're in the midst of it. Sometimes we're on the mountaintop experiencing the spiritual high. Other times we're in the valley like, yo, is God still with me? There are moments where it feels like I could open my eyes in the middle of prayer and just dap God up because he's so close to me. And then there are moments like in the Psalms where I cry out, how long, oh God, have you forgotten me? Valleys and victories. But there's God's super abundant grace sustaining me through it all. Giving me everything that I need to make it through the valleys and the victories in order to keep having hope until that one day when there is nothing more to suffer through. No more valleys, but only victories until he takes us to glory. So that's what we'll see as we jump into Exodus in our text today. A few short verses packed with lessons of what the Christian life ought to, we ought to expect the Christian life to be like. So let's pray one more time. Ask God for his help. And then we'll jump in. Father God, we come to you in the name of Christ. For the glory of Christ, by the power of the Spirit. Holy Spirit, would you anoint my words to accomplish your good and perfect will. May the meditations of my mind and the words from my mouth be pleasing to you, O oh God. Would you meet with us? We're not just gathered to check off some religious box. We want to meet with you, the living God. So please meet with us. Speak to us. Open our hearts and our ears that we might hear Believe, trust, and obey. Help us not just be hearers of your word this morning, God, but may we be doers as well, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Victories and valleys. So often, immature and uninformed faith assumes that after becoming a Christian, that life ought to be circumstantially easier and better. This is immature faith. Immature faith assumes, no, no, if I get right with God, my life should go better. That's an immature faith. That's not, that's not Bible. That's just immature intuition. Like if I get things right here, then everything out here should be perfect for me experientially in this life. But again, that's an immature faith. Mature faith knows that walking with God in this life, again, involves both victories and valleys. Blessed triumphs and bitter trials ought to be our expectation in this life with God. That's what we find in Scripture. That's what we find throughout church history. That's what we find in our own experience. That life and the Christian life and life with God is going to involve both. We see this in Israel's experience. Look again at chapter 15, verse 22. Then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. So again, I want you to think about where we left Israel. They was having a worship service. This is a worship night. <laughs> it was a praise break. They were celebrating. They were dancing. They were, they were celebrating, God, you've set us free. And then notice the text says, Moses made them go into the wilderness. It's an interesting phrase right there. Like, it seems to be they were like, no, hold up. We want to sing some more. <laughs> 
Like, we want to celebrate some more. I don't know that I really want to go out there in the wilderness. I like this spiritual high. I like what it feels like just on the other side of the Red Sea when I watched God's judgment waters crush my enemy. And now, currently, I feel victorious and everything feels good. I'm not sure that I want to move on from this. But Moses made them go forth into the wilderness, set out from the Red Sea. They went into the wilderness of Shur. And then they go three days in the wilderness and found no water. So they go from this overflowing praise of God to parched with thirst. (laughs) So praising to parched. It's like circumstantially, I don't like the direction this is headed. (laughs) Like I was singing and celebrating and now suddenly I'm longing and I I have need and I'm concerned and, and, and I don't feel satisfied. This is their experience. And notice they have a legit problem. Continue to read verse 23. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. So they have a legitimate problem. Three days journey into the wilderness without water. You can go about three days without water and then you die. Then then they go into Marah and they find water, but it's too bitter to drink. (laughs) So can you imagine this moment? I went from singing to super thirsty to finding some water that I can't drink. Like, this is a legit problem. So this is not just like, a, oh, they're, like they're, Israel's tripping. They're always complaining. We kind of roll our eyes and judge them. So no, no, no. They're thirsty. And they're going to die if they don't get water. And remember, we know from back in chapter 12, we're talking about 600,000 men plus women and children plus all the livestock. We're talking about a massive need of massive amounts of water. <laughs> we're talking about a lot of people and a lot of animals that are parched with thirst and in a situation where they need God to do Something to save them from this problem. They can't survive much longer. Have you ever found yourself in this kind of situation that feels kind of like this? Like I had a spiritual high. I left it and it almost feels like immediately I went into this valley. And now in this valley, I feel like I don't know if I can take another step. And notice in this case, it's just just three days. (laughs) They were enslaved for 400 years. God sent forth those 10 plagues. They've watched miracle after miracle. They've seen God's just judgment and his merciful grace to them. And three days in, and notice what happens. They start grumbling. Three days into a new trial in the wilderness. And suddenly all of that celebration, all of that singing goes silent. And instead what starts coming out is grumbling. Have you ever found yourself in a situation like that where you feel like I can't take another step. I don't know if I can keep going through this trial in the wilderness where it feels like God is distant from me and suddenly I have needs that I can't myself meet and everywhere I look, I see more needs and more challenges, but no hope. Well, in this kind of circumstance, what we see from this text is you have two options. Option number one is you can grumble and complain. (laughs) That's option number one, grumbling complaints. Look again at verse 24. And the people grumbled against Moses, saying, what shall we drink? So there's two two ways to respond. First way is grumbling. It's to say, God, you took me away from the celebratory singing, and now you sent me forth into the wilderness, and I'm parched, and I'm thirsty, and I have need, and I'm angry at you for it. This grumbling complaint against God. 
And again, think about what they've witnessed with their own eyes. Think about passing through the Red Sea, walking with your feet on dry ground and, and walls of water beside you to get to the other side. And his presence has been protecting you, protected you from the army. And then that same power, that same presence brought forth judgment and set you free from your enemies. Think about the 10 plagues they've witnessed. And now all the false gods of Egypt were nothing compared to Yahweh, the one true God. And three days in, they're like, God, I'm sick of you. I'm sick of how you lead me. I'm sick of needing you. Just three days into the wilderness. Grumbling. You know what grumbling is? Grumbling is a sin we all struggle with. <laughs> Nobody in this room is like, yo, this one don't step on my toes. <laughs> like, so, don't, so don't worry. You've got good company this morning. This is one of those where it's like, oh, guilty. You know what grumbling is? Grumbling is rebellious complaining against God's providential care in your life. It's rebellious complaining against God's providential care in your life. And it is at once both arrogant and ignorant. It's arrogant. Why is grumbling arrogant? Because at your heart level, when you're grumbling, you're saying, God, if I had as much power as you had, if I had as much knowledge as you have, if I had as much ability as you do, I would be governing my life better than you are. So this is an arrogant posture to grumble and complain because what you're saying is, I know better than you what you should be doing in my life. I know better than you how long I should sing and how long I should be in wilderness. So there's an arrogance in our hearts when we grumble. And friends, we're all guilty of it. When we grumble, and what I mean by grumbling is rebellious complaining against God because it's providential care in your life, we are arrogantly sinning against the one true God who we must give account to. But not only is it arrogant, it's ignorant. It's ignorant because you have you forgotten all the good things he's done for you in the past? Do you not remember what he did to save you of sin? To set you free from the bondage of your sin? Do you not remember what it felt like to wonder, is God going to provide? Can I take another step? I don't think I can. And then he showed up and helped you take the next step? Have you forgotten what he's done? Have you forgotten his providential care and love for you? Even Israel... In this moment, here's what's bad. Here's how sinful we are and ignorant we are in our sin. We forget that we've once forgot this before. <laughs> so not only do we forget he's taking care of us, we forget we forgot that before and he taught us again. So if you just flip back Exodus chapter 14, look back and what happened. So they're on that side of the Red Sea. The Egyptian army's coming after them. And now they're thinking, oh no, we're done. Pharaoh, the most powerful a uh, worldly army on the planet is coming after us. We're going to die. And what happens in chapter 14, verse 10? When Pharaoh drew near, the people of Israel lifted up their eyes and behold, the Egyptians were marching after them and they feared greatly. And the people of Israel cried out to the Lord. They said to Moses, is it because there are no graves in Egypt? You have taken us away to die in the wilderness. What have you done to us and bring us out of Egypt? Is this not what we said to you in Egypt? Leave us alone that we may serve the Egyptians. For it had been better for us to serve the Egyptians than to die out here in the wilderness. So they've already once grumbled against Moses' leadership, complained, you said, like literally they said, I would rather go back to slavery in Egypt, where they suffered for 400 years in unbearable torment and pain and oppression, unjustly. And now in the wilderness, when they see Pharaoh's army coming after them, they grumble against Moses and grumble and complain against the deliverer God has sent for them. And say, so it'd be better if we could go back and be slaves rather than die out here in the wilderness. And then what did God do? He sent his presence in the cloud to protect them from the army. 
So the presence of God blinds the enemies of God from the children of God. And then the power of God opens the Red Sea. They cross over, and then that Red Sea crushes his enemies and delivers them. So they had forgotten God will be faithful. He sent the plagues to set us free. He'll be faithful to get us across the Red Sea. Now they cross the Red Sea. They forgot that they forgot he was already faithful. <laughs> this is arrogant and ignorant. Has God not been faithful to you thus far? Are you not living and breathing and even hearing his word preached right now? Then why would he abandon you? So you can grumble complaints. That's one way to respond. Or you can have groaning prayers. Grumbling complaints or groaning prayers. Look at verse 25, the first part. And Moses, <clears throat> he cried to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a log, and he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. So Mo Moses rightly takes these bitter circumstances. I'm thirsty, and now these million-plus people are grumbling about my leadership yet again. I've messed this thing up. That You've used me. You've matured me. You've grown me. And here they are. We just walked through the Red Sea. I held up my staff. The water's parted. We crossed through. We're on this side. Here they are grumbling again. I'm thirsty. God, please do something. Now notice, he's bringing his bitter circumstances to God. Not in this grumbling complaint and rebellion and, and sin against God, but knowing, God, you're the one who can do something about this. So it's not wrong to take your complaint to God. It's wrong to complain about how God is overseeing your life as you bring your complaint to God. <laughs> so he's groaning out in prayer. And this is what we learn throughout the scriptures. That the lamenting, lamenting is a form of worship. And the pattern of Mark Vrogop in the book, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, uh, kind of walks through all the lamenting psalms and looks through lamentations, looks through some other laments in the Bible. And he says, this is what we see in lamenting and why it's worshipful, why it's pleasing to God. You bring your complaint to God. So you come to him. You bring your complaint to him. You ask him to do something. And then you choose to trust him. So it's bring, ask, and, and trust him. Choose to trust him. So you take your complaint. But you take your complaint. God, we're thirsty. You've made us as human beings to require water to survive. And you've brought us out in the wilderness. There's no water out here. I trust you. Will you meet our needs? is very different than, God, how dare you let me be out in this wilderness? Grumbling complaints or prayerful groaning out to God, I need you. Here I am in my needs. Meet my needs. Think about Job and his wife. Opening chapters of Job. Job loses everything. And he literally, his wife comes to him and is like, yo, just curse God and die. This ain't worth it. He's like, no, no, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. I'll choose to say, blessed be the name of the Lord. So what you need to understand is your bitter circumstances don't cause you to sin. They give you the opportunity to. But you've got a choice to respond sinfully to bitter circumstances or righteously to bitter circumstances. You've got a choice to say, I'm going to grumble and complain about God's providential care in my life, or I'm going to go to him groaning in prayer and say, please, God, I know you can do something. I know that you're able. I'm bringing my need to you, and I'm choosing to trust you. I don't understand your ways but I know you're good. I know my omnipotence, if I had it, would not be better than yours. I know my knowledge, if I had your knowledge, would not like, I know you're the one true God. I submit to that, but I'm asking, I'm pleading, do something about this bitter circumstance. Groaning, lamenting is a form of worship. It's even a spirit-led form of worship. What does the Apostle Paul say in Romans 8, 26? 
Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness. For do we, we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. So if you're walking by the Spirit, sometimes you're going to groan in prayer in ways you're like, I don't even know what to say. That's faithful worship. Holy Spirit-led faithful worship. I love it. One author uh, in a book on prayer that I'm reading right now said that, that sometimes all you can do, do is just lean towards God in prayer. You don't even know what to say, but you can lean towards him. You can groan by the Spirit. God, I don't even know what to say. I just know that I need you. I need you to move. I need you. So my question to you this morning is, how are you responding to the bitter trials in your life? Bitter grumbling or prayerful groaning? You're going through something. You're a human being in a broken world. You're going through something. If not, you're coming out of something or you're headed into something. So my question to you is, how are you going to respond to bitter trials? Because they're coming. It ought to be our expectation in this life. Bitter trials are coming. Groaning in prayer or grumbling in complaint. And here's the reality. Any Christian who's walked with God for a long time at all, or even for a short time, would admit that usually I learn more in the school of trial and suffering than I do in victory and ease. Usually God teaches me more in the difficulties, not when everything is easy. Maybe you could say we often learn more in the university of trial valley than we do the university of easy victory. We get schooled up by God in the midst of our suffering and trials in very unique ways. Again, are you groaning in prayer or are you grumbling in complaint? The Christian life includes lessons in victories and valleys. Secondly, the Christian life includes fellowship and accountability. And I'm talking primarily with God here, though there's implications for the church. But fellowship with God, covenant, unique fellowship with God, and covenant accountability to God. Faithfulness to this covenant he has with us. Look now at verse, the second part of verse 25. <clears throat> there the Lord made for them a statute and a rule. And there he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God, and do that which is right in his eyes, and give ear to his commandments, and keep all his statutes. I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord, your healer. Jehovah Rophi, your healer. So notice what happens. First, he's going to, this is covenant language. The whole, this whole verse is, is a covenant interaction. He's talking about covenant faithfulness. And even that's what he just demonstrated at the very end of our, our uh, uh, verse um, 25a, when he turns the water from bitter to sweet, he's showing, no, I've got a unique relationship with my covenant people. And so he's demonstrating that. And now he's saying, and I'm doing all of this because it's, it's test time. I'm testing your covenant faithfulness. I'm orchestrating and governing your life in order to expose your faithfulness to my word, to my covenant. This is a test of covenant faithfulness. Now, this word test is the first time it's been used in the Old Testament since back in Genesis chapter 22, verse 1. When God appears to Abraham and tests him and calls him to sacrifice Isaac, his son, who is the promised one through whom the seed of redemption is coming. And that's a test. And now suddenly here's this word test again showing up. And what you need to know just briefly is that the Bible is structured around God's covenants with his people. So he has a covenant with creation, which is debatable. We could talk about later. Dustin would love to have a conversation. There's a covenant with creation. Then there's clearly the covenant with Noah. And then from Noah, there's the covenant with Abram or Abraham to bless the nations. That covenant now comes to Israel, and we'll see at Sinai as we get uh, later into Exodus. Then there's a covenant with David, King David, 
And then that covenant, all those covenants are ultimately pointing to and fulfilled in Christ our Lord in the new covenant. But this is how God interacts with people. He has a special people. He's a covenant God. He's saying, no, no, I want a son who's going to represent and have me as father and then reign and rule on the earth. In a, that's what reflects God. This is what it means to be made in his image. I have God as my covenant father, and then I represent his rule and reign in this life. Adam failed. Noah failed. Abraham failed. Israel failed. King David failed. Jesus. you got to wait a minute. We'll be there in a minute. <clears throat> but what he's demonstrating right here is that I'm, I'm faithful. I'm a faithful covenant-keeping God. And so I'm demonstrating and showing you. And even in the midst of God's covenants, do you know the covenant was cut? And what they would do is sacrifice these animals. They would lay them out in two different rows. And the two parties of the covenant would walk through the rows. We see it most clearly in Genesis chapter 15. They would walk through the rows saying we're going to keep these covenant promises to one another. And if we break these covenant promises, let us be like these dead bodies beside us. So this is what a covenant was. It was a, it was a binding promise, a binding covenant promise uniquely that God is having with his people, Israel. And he's showing right now what is happening in the midst of this. I'm present with you, and I'm exposing, I'm testing you. I'm testing your covenant faithfulness. It's like a pop quiz. <laughs> Will you be faithful to the covenant I have made with you? Bitter trials are opportunities for the best tests. And this is what he's doing. I'm going to put you in the wilderness in the middle of a, a bitter trial to test your faithfulness to this covenant that we've made, that I have with you. This trial is going to expose. It's going to expose whether or not you are faithful. You know, this is the power of a pop quiz, right? Everybody, like, does anybody like a pop quiz? No, except for the geeks who are always ready. Praise God for you, but most of us are not that, <laughs> right? Most of us are like, we hear pop quiz, and it's like, oh, shoot, I have no hope of doing well in this thing. Like, that's, that, or at least that's, maybe I'm just confessing my own issues. But anyway, I'm confessing my issues this morning. You hear pop quiz, and why? What's the power of a pop quiz? Because it exposes what's you and what you just crammed to know to pass this test. It exposes what you've learned and embraced and understand just in who you are now. Versus what you crammed in. So Dustin uh, is finishing up Hebrew. I took Hebrew. For me, it's like, look, he's still learning and, and enjoying it. I crammed for those exams. I got through that mug. And when I go to Lagos, I can understand enough. <laughs> but if you pop quiz me right now, I'm going to fail the mess out of that mug. <laughs> Because it hasn't become who I am. It hasn't become a part of my natural knowledge. That's the power of a pop quiz. It tests what you really know versus what you could just cram to past. In this moment, these trials are like pop quizzes. But what he's demonstrating with his covenant faithfulness is, do you know that in these pop quizzes, I'm present. I'm with you. I'm in control. God didn't fall asleep when you was going through your bitter trial. <laughs> He was giving you a pop quiz to show you your covenant faithfulness. And sometimes you fail that mug. <laughs> and you realize, wait a minute, I'm not faithful. A little bit of suffering, a little bit of negative circumstances, and suddenly I abandon all the promises of God that I've made to him. God, I'll never do this if you'll just do that. And then suddenly I'm doing it all over again. <laughs> These pop quizzes reveal who you really are. But in Genesis 15, here's the interesting thing about the covenant God makes with Abraham. Abraham's asleep, knocked out in this dream, in this vision, this trance, whatever the supernatural interaction is. God himself walks through the dead animals. Abraham's not with him. As if to say, if this covenant is broken, either way, I'm the one who must die. Yeah, yeah. 
So now suddenly he's testing Israel. He's revealing you failed, but don't worry, I'm gracious. You have a unique covenant relationship with me that I'm demonstrating. If anybody's going to die, it's not you, it's going to be me. Because our God is merciful and gracious. Now he's wooing Israel with his faithfulness unto their faithfulness. So he's demonstrating, I'm wooing you into faithfulness. I'm showing you, I could have crushed you like the Egyptians. Do you remember the first plague? Water in the Nile turned to blood, undrinkable, bitter. Now, currently, the water is bitter, and he turns it sweet, makes it drinkable. Exact opposite of the plague against Egypt showing, you're my covenant people. For those who I'm going to judge, I'll make the water undrinkably bitter. For those who belong to me, I'll make that bitter water sweet. You can trust when I'm testing you. I'm with you. My presence is here, and I'm testing you to expose your faithfulness so that you then look and see my faithfulness, and that leads you forth into more faithfulness. Covenant fellowship uniquely with God. But also notice accountability. Notice the four verbs. Read again verse 26. There the Lord made for them a statue and a rule. So again, this is covenant language. There he tested them, saying, If you will diligently listen to the voice of the Lord your God and do that which is right in his eyes, give ear to his commandments and keep all his statutes, I will put none of the diseases on you that I put on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord your healer. I'm uniquely powerful. I'm in unique relationship with you. I can heal the bitter water, make it pure. Here's what you're to do in response to all that. Listen, do, give ear, keep my word. Listen to my word. Do my word. Keep my word. Give ear to my word. Think of all he's done. The Passover celebrations, the the Feast of the Unleavened Bread, all the things he's commanded them to do. He said, now that you're my covenant people, I've given you the test to show you your rebellion, your unfaithfulness, so that you'll see where you're at and so that you'll turn and be faithful because my faithfulness has not stopped. Listen. Do. Give ear. Keep. And this generation continually rebels against God. Therefore, they're not the ones to enter the promised land. And so again, there's unique covenant fellowship, but there's also covenant accountability. Sin has repercussions for the covenant people of God. Should you choose to be unfaithful, there's going to be repercussions in your life that you got for yourself. This is the way it works. So God is being faithful in his covenant fellowship, but he is also saying, I'm holding you accountable to something. There is something you must do. You must hear my word. You must believe my word. You must trust and do my word. And if so, you'll live the blessed life. You will be blessed. If you rebel against my word, you should expect all kinds of trials to come to you. Not that are trials that are tests for God, but are are from God, but trials that you picked for yourself because of your sin. That you're walking in the mess you made because of your sin. So there's unique covenantal fellowship, but there's also covenantal accountability. Flip to Hebrews chapter 3. We'll see the author of Hebrews use this, even this interaction, this story, to point us and show us, even as Christians, again, this is what we should expect in the Christian life. Valleys and victories, unique fellowship, but also accountability in this Christian walk with God. Hebrews chapter 3, verse 12. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Community, here's how you're important to one another. But exhort one another every day as long as it's called today, 
that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold to our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? So we see that they were unable to enter because of their unbelief. So again, there's unique covenant relationship with God because of his grace and mercy. But there's unique accountability that you must then respond to his grace and mercy. Romans 2.4 said, do you not know that God's kindness is meant to lead you to repentance? Take care, brothers. Make sure there's not an unbelieving a heart in you that rebels against God and falls away from the living God. Then you'll be in destructions of your own choosing. Take care of your brothers and sisters in Christ and look out for those who are struggling and falling away from God into sin and exhort them. As long as today is called today, call them back to covenant faithfulness. There's unique covenant relationship and unique covenant faithfulness required in this life. So my question to you then would be, whose voice dictates your life? Whose voice dictates your life? You're listening to someone and you're obeying them. And this is what covenant relationships do. You're in covenant with someone. Someone's telling you what the good life is and what the good life's not. Someone's telling you what's right and what's wrong. The question is, who are you listening to? Whose word dictates your life? Are you hearing God's word and responding and doing his word? Or you're being like, ah, I'll take some of that word, but I don't really like that word, so I'll take this word. Well, then you reject all his word. You can only ultimately listen to the voice of one. Is it the one true God or your own voice or the voice of your friends or the voice of popular culture, the voice of current trends? Whose voice has authority in your life, God or someone else? Bitter trials make the best test case because they expose, not cause, your faithfulness or unfaithfulness. They reveal it. When you're going through something, you find out what you really are. <laughs> you really are faithful to God or you're really not. Where do you turn in the midst of bitter trials? To groaning prayer and the promises of God's word? Do you hear and believe and obey? Or do you grumble and disobey God's word because you're obeying the words of your favorite idols? Life with God includes victories and valleys, fellowship and accountability. Who is heavy? How do we make it to the end? Knowing there's going to be a roller coaster of ups and downs, knowing there is covenant faithfulness requirements, Knowing that we have the fellowship, but he's holding us accountable, how do we make it to the end? Thirdly and finally, superabundant grace and glorious hope. Superabundant grace and glorious hope. Look at verse 27. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees, and they encamped there by the water. So can we just talk for a second about sweet grace? From bitter to sweet. Mara means bitter. Think of Naomi in the book of Ruth. Say, my life is so jacked up, just call me Mara. Call me bitter. So they found water, but it was bitter they couldn't drink it. He turned it sweet. They go from Mara at the beginning of our text to at the very end of our text, they go to Elam, which is scholars would say perhaps an oasis. And notice the reason we would say it's an oasis. Notice what we see. 12 springs of water and 70 palm trees. 
where they can encamp by the water. They go from, I don't have any water to drink that's not bitter, to 12 springs of water for the 12 tribes of Israel. Each tribe's got their own stream. 70 palm trees to give shade over the 70 elders of Israel. So from, from bitterness to sweetness, why? Because of the grace and mercy of God. They failed the pop quiz. And what's his response? Here's some sweet water and some shade. Sweet, sweet grace. And again, sweet, super abundant grace. Twelve springs and 70 palm trees. It's not like they go thirsty and it's like, yo, all right, everybody get in line. All one million of y'all, plus get the animals too. Let them get some. No, 12 streams. God's grace is abundant. Did you know there's infinitely more grace in God than sin in you? So you might think, man, I've got so much sin, I just don't know what he'll do. Like, he's got infinitely more grace than you could ever think or imagine. Like, your sin is so little compared to his grace. It's serious. It demands his grace. It deserves his just judgment. But his grace is just so much more abundant than you realize. Super abundant in his grace. Super abundant in his grace. So one of the things, uh, this is a silly illustration, uh, but it's what came to mind, so you get it. So I love uh, sports, and particularly I'm the weird dude who, uh, I love the off-season of sports. So I love trades and, and free agent signings and negotiations and contracts, and it's just kind of a weird, geeked-out thing that I like to do. So right now, the NBA is in the middle of all kinds of chaos, and it's so much fun, because uh, who knows where Durant or Irving's going to end up, and if you're watching it all, you're with me, and you're geeking out. Anyway, it's incredible. But in the midst of these negotiations, there are some certain guys who qualify what's called a supermax contract. So if they hit certain incentives and perform in a certain way, they get a, a, a portion of the uh, overall team salary cap that nobody else can get. It's a supermax contract. If you're in Christ, he's given you a supermax contract of grace. Not because you've done anything. You failed the quiz. Supermax contract for all those who are in Christ. Why? Because of this unique fellowship. Therefore, go perform with all that you have. Not, not because, it's a guaranteed contract. It's all guaranteed. You get it all. And so therefore, you're free to say, no, no, this God is in fellowship with me. He set me free. He gave me a supermax contract of abundant grace. I can't lose. I have the hope of glory. Therefore, I want to be faithful because he's been so faithful to me. Not in order to earn his faithfulness to me. I could never do that. But because he earned it for me and freely gave it, I want to do that. I want to obey this God because he's super abundant in grace. And this gives us hope. Now, there are some that would look at these texts and look back to the promise uh, at the end of verse, uh, I believe it was 25, that you won't have the plagues that I, I plagued Egypt with. And some health, wealth, prosperity preachers will twist this text and say Christians will never get sick. It's utter nonsense and totally unbiblical from beginning to end. Sin has entered the world. It's broken. Our bodies get old and die. It happens to everybody that's in this, in this current text. They all get old and die. <laughs> like, this, like it's, aging is still going to happen. Sickness and disease can still happen. But what God is demonstrating, again, is his covenant faithfulness. Because he's saying, I'm the one who sent the plagues on Egypt. I won't send those on you. Because you're mine, uniquely. So this is not a health, wealth, prosperity passage. This is a, our God is supermax God of supermax grace contracts with his people. He has this kind of relationship uniquely with his people. But it does leave us with a question, okay, but what about our covenant unfaithfulness? Again, Adam failed. Noah failed. Abraham failed. Israel failed. David failed. But God wasn't surprised in the least bit. 
Remember again, he walked through all the pieces of animals as if to say, if this covenant gets broken, I die. That's exactly what he did. He sent forth his son for everybody who failed to keep their covenant faithfulness. Christ said, I didn't come to abolish the law. I came to fulfill it. I came to show you they were, they were trying and failed every one of them. None of them were good enough to save you. And this covenant unfaithfulness must be dealt with. God is holy and righteous and just. He deserves to get his glory by crushing his enemies. But he's also merciful and kind and gracious. So he sends his son and crushes his son in the place of his enemies so that all who would say, I take his grace and mercy, their sin has been punished in Christ, in the substitute, and his covenant faithfulness is given freely to those who trust in Christ. Therefore, his covenants have been fulfilled in Christ. And therefore, if you're in Christ, supermax contract, superabundant grace, and glorious hope that one day, hopefully sooner than later, I hope circumstantially everything goes great for you for the rest of your life. It probably won't. <laughs> probably valleys, probably victories, probably a roller coaster, ups and downs, highs and lows. But here's what I can promise you. If you've got that supermax contract, it's guaranteed for eternity. And one day, no more sickness, no more suffering, no more valleys, only victory forever as we celebrate Christ. And you know how I know this? John chapter 7, the Lord Jesus shows up and what does he say? John 7, what, what does Christ say? On the last day of the feast, that great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. So Jesus is like, no, no, no. I've fulfilled covenant faithfulness. I've taken the punishment of your covenant unfaithfulness, and I'm going to die. I'm going to resurrect on the third day. I'm going to send to the Father, and then I'm sending the Holy Spirit to dwell in you, who is the guarantee of the new covenant. Then now my law is written on your heart, and the Spirit convicts you of sin, shows you where you failed the test, show you how Christ passed the test for you, how he graciously gave you that record, and how now in him you get the glory and celebration forever. Super abundant grace for those who break the covenant. Super abundant grace and hope. All that is bitter in this life will eventually and finally be better. At some point, it's going to happen. Whether you're walking on dry ground through the Red Sea or through the wilderness with a parched soul, His super abundant grace will sustain you and keep you and provide all that you need to keep hoping until that day when there's no more suffering. You know how the Bible ends? Revelation chapter 21. Listen to the language. Then I'm going to get out the way so we can sing because saved people sing. Even when they realize they failed the test, but Christ gives them his righteous record. Revelation chapter 21, verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them. They will be his people. And God himself will be with them as their God. All of that's the covenant fulfillment language. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I'm making all things new. He said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, it is done. 
I'm the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. And listen what it says. To the thirsty, I will give from the spring of the water of life without payment. The one who conquers will have this heritage. I will be his God, and he will be my son. Flip over, chapter 22, verse 17. How does the Bible end? The spirit and the bride, that is the church, say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who, take, who desires take the water of life without price. From beginning to end, the Lord Jesus says, I am the one for the parched soul. And so the question this morning is, are you thirsty for, for the living God? This life you ought to expect will be victories and valleys, will be fellowship and accountability, but in Christ loaded with superabundant grace and hope that one day no more suffering, only glory, only joy. So Christian, what ought you to do? Confess and repent of your sin this morning. Where you failed the test, confess that to God. Receive his superabundant grace and then walk in faithfulness. Non-Christian friend, here's what you need to become a Christian. Need. You need to realize, I'm guilty, I have no hope. You're a perfect candidate for the grace and mercy of God in Christ. Look to Christ, trust in Christ, confess your sin to Christ and say, Christ, satisfy me. You're my only hope. And then grab a friend and let's talk about it and let us help you. Let's close in prayer. Father God, we thank you for Christ.